0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at Britain's global role after Brexit. My guests are Robin Niblett, director of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House, and Linda Yu, who is currently a visiting professor at the London School of Economics. So what is Britain's future beyond Brexit? When Boris Johnson is asked to define his vision for the United Kingdom, the phrase he reaches for is global Britain. Mr Speaker, with permission, I will make a statement about the ambitions of a global Britain and the lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic. Events on the far side of the world influence not only British security and prosperity, but something as elemental as the state of our health. This crisis offers vivid proof of the seminal importance of international engagement and exactly why our country must perform its global role. I've begun. Many backers of Brexit have long argued that the EU is doomed to slow or stagnant growth. The real economic opportunities, they say, lie in Asia. In 2015, the year before Britain voted for Brexit, President Xi Jinping of China visited the UK. There were some street protests, but the British government was talking about a new golden era in British-Chinese relations. And President Xi received a greeting full of pomp and ceremony. However, over the past year, Britain's relations with China have soured over Hong Kong, human rights and a number of other issues. It's awkward timing coming in the middle of the Brexit process. But one thing that Brexit has caused is a flurry of intellectual activity as the UK's foreign policy thinkers and economists try to navigate a way forward for the country. The British government will soon produce its own national security strategy and two of the country's leading think tanks have also just come out with reports. The London School of Economics set up a commission on UK economic diplomacy in the 21st century, which reported this week. It's chaired by Linda Yu, and I was actually one of the 20 so-called commissioners, albeit a rather inactive member, for which I hereby apologise to my fellow commissioners. And last month, Chatham House brought out its report, written by Robin Niblett, called Global Britain, Global Broker. So I started our conversation by asking Robin Niblett what he meant by the idea of a global broker.
2: What it means in reality is that the UK is well-placed to be able to help other countries overcome some of the big global challenges that they face today. The UK is still, despite Brexit and despite everything it has gone through the corona crisis, one of the countries that's most diplomatically networked internationally, has the benefits of commanding the main global language. It has the benefits of time zone, has the benefits of being one of the big players internationally in terms of being a permanent member of the UN Security Council, G7, G20, IMF, etc., and is a pretty big spender and will be a big spender on international issues well into the future, even into 2030. It'll be in the top of the second tier of countries. So the question is, what does the UK do with these assets and these international interests that they have? It's a very open and engaged economy and country, as we've seen with the COVID crisis and as we've seen in the past. What does it do with its capability, given that it's no longer sitting inside its main regional institution, the EU? And what I advocate in the paper is that it set its sights, I suppose, of being a broker rather than a great power, and more on being an enabler for others of solutions that also meet the UK's interests. And I lay out a range of areas where the UK has, crucially, a mix of interests, credibility uh, and resources, Uh, And I think some of these are obvious ones in 2021. Climate change is a space where the UK is credible. It's taken some really important steps uh, forward in its domestic legislation. It's uh, co-hosting the COP26 summit later on this year. And it is a big economy in the world, sixth, seventh largest in the world. So taking that combination of assets, it can bring other countries together to try to move the dial forward perhaps more effectively than other countries could do. And there's a bunch of other areas we could look at, from global health to security and so on, where I think the UK can play that brokering role, rather than being out sort of buccaneering on the high seas for UK interests alone, which I just don't think is a credible option.
1: And Linda, the LSE report is focused more on economic diplomacy and economic interests. But it seems to me it comes to a similar sort of uh, position as the Chatham House report, in that it talks about Britain becoming a global hub for services. What would that mean, and how does it fit in with your other recommendations?
0: Yes, that's the first recommendation, and you're right in terms of approach is very similar to what Robin has outlined. So sort of stepping back, what the report uh, tries to do is to look at economic diplomacy. And this is a very broad concept that essentially says, how should the UK position its trade, investment, and the kind of role it should be playing in the global economy within a larger diplomatic framework? We are looking at a world in which the multilateral system is fraying, But at the same time, we're looking at a 21st century global economy with new drivers, new economic trends that were there in the latter part of the 20th century, but have become a lot more prominent. And this is around services trade. This is around digital trade. So in terms of the major trend of services growth, which is very related to digital trade, the multilateral rules around that were really done before the widespread use of the internet. So there's quite a lot of updating which is needed. And there's been a lot of, I would say, more piecemeal approaches um, in this area on the global level. But there hasn't been a major round to advance this. So the consequences, this area, which is one of the fastest growing area of world trade, the UK's comparative advantage um, is in this area, which also supports manufacturing goods trade because services tend to be embedded in that. So, how should the UK approach um, this both opportunity, um, but then be mindful of the challenges, is to work with other countries to try and advance rules around specific aspects of trade and services and digital goods. And because it's not a multilateral system, the UK ends up sitting in the middle of overlapping trade agreements around services and digital. And that's what a hub looks like. But at the same time, by building up a body of standards, of rules, of norms, countries which um, share interests in um, opening up this sector, um, you're beginning to work plurilaterally as well. Um, and that's one of the recommendations, which is to relaunch a plurilateral effort to advance and upgrade services and digital trade under the WTO. So it's multi-level and it really puts the UK as a broker and at the table for some of the biggest changes that we're seeing in the world.
1: Robin, I think in the Chatham House report, there's a reference to daunting challenges. Uh, Linda, I think you you also use the word challenging, but also talk about significant potential opportunities for Britain. Robin, where do you strike the balance between the dauntingness of the challenge and and the opportunities?
2: Well, from my perspective, I think the daunting nature of the challenge for the UK is partly to do with money and partly to do with relationships. For the UK to be an effective global broker, it better not be at war with its main neighbour, the EU. Uh, And obviously the COVID crisis uh, has sharpened anxieties and insecurities amongst many governments. And the very clunky nature of the thin, skinny, Trade and cooperation agreement that the UK has struck with the EU means that we're going to have teething troubles and disagreements with the EU for a while. However, I feel that over time, the UK and the EU can't escape each other. They share many of the same principal foreign policy concerns, uh, whether it be about China uh, or Russia or the Middle East peace process or climate and they're gonna have to find ways uh, to work with each other. So although I'm nervous about how effectively the UK can partner with its EU neighbors on its bigger global agenda in the near term, I think they'll get there. I was a bit more worried about how the UK could be an effective global broker with the Biden administration, because Joe Biden and those around him have been skeptical about Brexit. He's been critical of Boris Johnson personally. And they're very comfortable with the idea of the EU, unlike Trump. But in the last few months, we've seen the EU kind of do its own thing, talking about not needing to have permission from the United States, striking a investment agreement with China, despite urging not to do it from the incoming Biden administration. And Britain has sat quietly on the side, and I think reminded the US that it still is a very important partner for America's global agenda, and now the U.S. is going to need the U.K. a little bit more to balance out a rather independently-minded EU. The area I'm cautious about is institutions. The U.K. is going to have to be very intelligent in how it uses its positioning in the G7 or in the G20 to remain an influential broker. It can't simply just sit there and say, we're at the table, now treat us seriously. It actually has to come up with an effective agenda, and that requires planning. It requires effective uh, diplomacy with other countries that are members of these institutions. And on both those areas, yeah, it's going to be tough. We have a a government that got into power by being ideological. Brexit was an ideological uh, project in my mind. We'll see how it pans out. But to, to flip from being ideological to being behind the scenes and pragmatic as a broker is difficult. This year, we'll see how the UK is able to, to do it. We'll see it in the G7. Can it run an effective global health agenda through the G7? Can it come up with the COP26 with an effective set of diplomatic plans that could make the US and China and the EU and India all make new commitments? This is going to be a tall order and it's gonna really test this government's diplomatic skills. The last thing to say on this front is is money. And the UK, if it wants to be an effective global broker, needs to have the money behind its diplomacy. It's already cutting money from its uh, development agenda. Yes, it's spending more on defense, but most of that extra money on defense is just to stand still. If we don't see more money put into the UK's diplomatic capability, then it's going to be very difficult for the UK to play any type of really effective role now that it can't rely on EU bolstering and EU ballast for its trade policy, its development policy, uh, and a lot of its broader diplomatic activity. It's going to have to do a lot of this stuff itself. Linda, how do you uh, see that?
1: I mean, you also, in the LSE report, stress the need for economic diplomacy and, and expanding the resources available to that But Robin seems to me to raise quite a strong warning flag that those resources may not be provided. And if they're not, will Britain struggle to make advantage of the significant opportunities that you talk about?
0: I certainly agree that resources are needed, especially around the diplomacy part. Quite a lot of being effective is around the soft power diplomacy the institutions and the pragmatism that the UK has been known for in terms of policymaking. So, just looking at um, that set of recommendations, they center on, for instance, creating a cadre of economic diplomats who not only move between UK departments, but are seconded to international economic organizations, which both increases the uh, skill set of UK economic diplomats, um, but also influences um, the organizations to which the UK is sending its civil servants, um, you know, giving them much more familiarity and usually uh, networking and influence um, are related in places like Um, the World Trade Organization, uh, the IMF, uh, the OECD, the ILO, and then for that to be coordinated within a central coordinating body in the cabinet office. It's not enough just to focus narrowly on, say, economic issues. The non-economic issues play a big part in how the UK should position itself in the global economy and the kind of global role that it plays. So it does require resources to have this more comprehensive strategic approach. You're also in a world in which there's a high degree of competition between economic superpowers and this kind of tension between these economies means that it's very challenging to do much on the multilateral stage. And so to maneuver in this space, we need to have focus on shared interests, areas where you need a global role around environmental standard or technology standard, bring in private sector expertise and use that to begin to form a consensus that um, these economies and blocs can sign up to. So that does require a lot of skill to be pragmatic, um, inclusive, and dare I say it, a little technical, (laughs) to gain agreement on some of these issues. So rather than go hugely broad brush, focus on the areas um, that's causing impediments now to the way that the world economy operates. And I would put digital um, and a number of services at the top of that list.
1: Yeah, I mean, Robin, Linda there identifies, seems to me like a central tension for the UK, which is the possibility, some may even say the reality now, of a growing tension with China, which is by some measures already the largest economy in the world. And obviously that, that's, that's a big problem if you're trying to reconstruct the global economic profile of the UK. What Linda was talking about seemed to be navigating between China and the United States, trying to bring the two of them together, finding technical solutions. Do you think though that that is possible or do you reckon that in reality, Britain is currently being pulled towards the U.S. side of this strategic
2: rivalry that some are even calling a new Cold War? Well, I think the U.K. always has been and is now all the more so inevitably on the U.S. side in this strategic competition that is emerging, driven, in my opinion, largely by a more assertive set of policies and actions, both domestically and internationally by China, which has kind of changed the context in which European leaders, including previously David Cameron and George Osborne, had announced famously the golden era in UK-China relations. I think that golden era is over, if it ever really kicked off for that matter. The UK is clearly putting its flag in the ground as one of the champions of liberal democracy. And there's no doubt that there are a number of democracies around the world uh, that are vulnerable, um, and that are being made more vulnerable, certainly by the Russian government, and some others that are interfering to the best of their ability and trying to weaken some of the bonds of trust in democracies around the world. The UK has said that this system of government is one that needs protecting and it needs protecting amongst its neighbors in Europe. But it also needs protecting amongst other democracies around the world in Japan, South Korea, Australia, parts of Africa, Latin America, where they may prove to be vulnerable. And the main threat that's seen to that democracy, part of it is internal. It's the failures of democracies themselves not to have adapted to the pressures of globalization and all democracies are kind of works in progress. But there's also a sense that there's an alternative to liberal democracy that China is putting forward and that is being exported to a certain extent to other authoritarian forms of leadership that are very happy to take on the Chinese model if they can. And the UK, to the extent that it tries to be a global broker, is probably going to start in that role as a broker amongst liberal democracies, rather than one that is trying to bridge permanently between the United States and China. And this is where the G7 is interesting, because the G7 is a group of like-minded countries that are trying to set standards for themselves of action, whether it's to counter counter Russian actions in Crimea, or as it did in the past, or interventions in Ukraine, and is probably going to inch its way forward this year and in future years to become, and I'll use Linda's term here, a hub of like-minded countries that want to start to establish precisely those maybe either technical standards for new 5G generation technology, or maybe global health standards for sharing data health that live up to, liberal democratic standards of protecting individual rights of privacy and other forms of individual rights that are at the core of what liberal democracy stand for. And trying to do that with China at the same time as with the US and Europe and Japan, South Korea, Australia, is incredibly difficult. So I think you're going to have to really separate out what it means to be brokering solutions amongst like-minded democracies that want to make sure they're strong in this more competitive environment. And then looking for opportunities to broker progress with countries like China. And you're going to have to live in both those worlds. There are times when China is going to be annoyed, to use a modest term, with Britain on certain steps it takes, whether it's on Hong Kong, whether it's on limiting trade with companies involved in Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are being repressed at the moment by the uh, Beijing authorities. Can you be firm on those lines? But at the same time, when it comes to COP26, still find a way to broker a solution on shared global challenges like climate change. And it's going to be difficult. But to be frank, it is a lot more credible than the UK trying to think it can sit as a bridge between China and America.
1: Okay, Linda, let me, to finish, then give you an opportunity to comment on that point, because I think there is certainly a difference in nuance between the two of you. Does this idea of starting or preferencing liberal democracies, does that really work as a concept for the economic diplomacy that the LSE report's talking about.
0: I would say the sort of the starting point of uh, the LSE report is the u k needs to be a supporter of an open multilateral trading system. So the policies which are being discussed are around commercial openness, but making it fairer, especially for those in society who don't benefit as much. And then in terms of what it means globally, a lot of soft power projection is about, having principles and values, and the way in which you conduct yourself that gives you credibility to bring other countries together, to have greater market opening, to have rules, standards, and norms. The US-China tensions, I think even from the American side, is multifaceted. So you have competition in a number of areas, but the Biden administration, I think, is also saying that on COP26, there are a number of areas in which there are shared interests with China around global public goods. So in this report, really the entire second part is focused on how the UK can find the shared interests in health and the environment in particular, because the UK has such competitiveness and knowledge and deep expertise, including in the private and academic sector, uh, to contribute as well as in green finance and that's an area where we could describe it as positive sum for both the US and China and so different issues will warrant a different approach but i think the overall positioning of the UK has to be one in which these relationships will be very dependent on the issues. And of course, this is the slight difference in emphasis between the LSE Commission on Economic Diplomacy and Robin's Chatham House report. But I would conclude by saying the report makes it fairly clear that economic and non-economic considerations need to be taken on a range of issues. But we think it's a good starting point to begin to break down some of the silos between thinking of trade and investment and global policies are somehow different or separate than foreign policy writ large, and linking all of those, crucially, to domestic impact. So the recommendation we make, a key one, is there should be an impact assessment so that if there is an impact identified, then there can be coordination via domestic policy to ensure that there is a widely shared benefit to society. So you're breaking down any artificial division between foreign and domestic. And that will help strengthen democracy at home. That will help strengthen buy-in into a global role for the UK. And I think all of that would be an improvement over thinking about policy in much narrower terms for, I would say, not just the UK, but other countries as well.
1: That was Robin Niblett and Linda Yu ending this edition of The Rachman Review. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find The Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps.
0: Learn how at Bellincat.com